0: Chapter 7, Nephrology. Topic 1, Nephrology Basics. In this first section, we'll start by reviewing the basic function of a nephron, the functional unit of the kidney. Let's start with the glomerulus, a tuft of capillaries that serves as the first stage in the filtration of blood to form urine. This is where blood is filtered, and small solutes are separated from blood cells and large proteins. The primary filtrate then moves into the renal tubule, where selective reabsorption and secretion occur. From the glomerulus, the filtrate enters the proximal convoluted tubule. Here, the majority of ions, water, and nutrients are reabsorbed into the bloodstream. This segment also removes toxins and adjusts the pH of the filtrate. It is noteworthy that nearly all glucose, amino acids, and vitamins are reabsorbed here, making this segment a key player in conserving essential nutrients. As the filtrate flows down the descending limb of the loop of Henle, it encounters a region with aquaporins that make the tubule permeable to water, allowing water to be reabsorbed by osmosis into the hypertonic medullary interstitial fluid. The ascending limb of the loop of Henle, however, is impermeable to water. Instead, it actively reabsorbs ions, particularly sodium and chloride, into the interstitial fluid. Contributing to the osmolarity gradient in the kidney's medulla. The distal tubule fine tunes the filtrate by selectively secreting ions, like potassium and hydrogen, and reabsorbing different ions, such as sodium and calcium, to maintain blood pH and electrolyte balance. It is responsive to hormones like aldosterone, which increases sodium reabsorption, and antidiuretic hormone, which stimulates water reabsorption. Finally, the filtrate enters the collecting duct where further reabsorption of salutes and water can occur, depending on the body's needs. The collecting duct is the final site of water reabsorption and is also responsive to antidiuretic hormone, which dictates the final urine concentration. Throughout this process, substances like urea, uric acid, creatinine, and certain drugs are secreted into the filtrate, ensuring their elimination from the body. Next, we'll discuss the urinalysis, focusing on its interpretation. Interpretation of urinalysis, a fundamental tool in clinical medicine, provides insight into renal function and possible systemic diseases. White blood cells are normally absent in urine. Their presence is indicative of urinary tract infection or inflammation. The detection of leukocyte esterase in urine, which should also be negative under normal conditions, signifies pyuria, which is often associated with infection. Nitrites in urine, typically negative, Suggest the presence of bacteria capable of reducing nitrate to nitrite, pointing towards bacteriuria. Red blood cells, when present in urine, can signal conditions such as glomerulonephritis, nephrolithiasis, cystitis, or coagulopathy. Protein levels in urine are normally less than 30 milligrams per DC liter. Increased levels can be due to a wide range of pathologies, from benign to serious kidney diseases. The absence of ketones is expected in normal urinalysis, However, their presence could indicate starvation or diabetic ketoacidosis. Bilirubin should not be found in the urine. If present, it may reflect hepatobiliary pathology or direct hyperbilirubinemia. Specific gravity, which measures the concentration of solutes in urine, is typically around 1.010. Values below this may indicate conditions such as psychogenic polydipsia or diabetes insipidus while values above may suggest dehydration or the syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion, S-I-A-D-H. The pH of urine can range from 5.5 to 8, with variations dependent on the body's acid-base status. Finally, the absence of CAS is normal. The presence of different types of CAS can hint at various conditions. WBC-CAS may be seen in pylonephritis or interstitial nephritis. RBC-CAS could indicate glomerulonephritis. Eosinophil casts may point to allergic interstitial nephritis. Hyaline casts often represent dehydration, and muddy brown granular casts are characteristic of acute tubular necrosis. In the next subsection, we focus on the interpretation of arterial blood gases, a crucial skill in assessing and managing patients with acid base imbalances. Let's work through the process step by step. First, we evaluate the pH to determine if the patient has alkalemia, where the pH is greater than. 7.45, or acidemia, where the pH is less than 7.35. These values set the stage for our understanding of the patient's acid-base status. Next, we determine the origin of the pH derangement, whether it's due to respiratory causes, indicated by changes in partial pressure of carbon dioxide, PaCO2, or metabolic causes, suggested by alterations in bicarbonate. Remember, in respiratory processes, PaCO2 moves inversely with pH, while in metabolic processes bicarbonate moves in the same direction as pH. Then, we assess compensation. In a perfect homeostatic response to an acid-based disturbance, the body attempts to return the pH to normal. If the primary problem is respiratory, the kidneys will try to compensate by adjusting bicarbonate levels. Conversely, if the primary problem is metabolic, the lungs compensate by altering ventilation, and hence, PaCO2 levels. We categorize compensation as none, partial, or complete, based on whether the pH is normalized or not. The compensation formulas provide us with a way to predict the expected compensatory response and to determine if it falls within the appropriate range for acute or chronic settings. For instance, in acute respiratory acidosis, a 10 millimeters mercury increase in PaCO2 should result in a 1 milliequivalence per liter increase in bicarbonate, whereas in chronic conditions, this would lead to a 3.5 milliequivalence per liter increase in bicarbonate. When faced with metabolic acidosis, we also consider the anion gap, which helps us identify whether there are unmeasured anions contributing to the acidosis. A high anion gap indicates the presence of additional acids, such as in lactic acidosis or diabetic ketoacidosis. Management typically includes IV fluids, insulin for DKA, or specific antidotes such as for toxic alcohol ingestions. On the other hand, non-anion gap metabolic acidosis can arise from renal losses like in renal tubular acidosis or gastrointestinal losses such as diarrhea. The urine and ion gap can help differentiate between these two. A positive urine and ion gap suggests renal tubular acidosis, whereas a negative one points towards gastrointestinal causes. There are several clinical manifestations of acidosis and alkalosis. Acidosis, which is a systemic increase in hydrogen ion concentration or decrease in bicarbonate, leads to a lower blood pH. Clinically, patients may present with neurological symptoms such as headache, sleepiness, confusion, or even progression to loss of consciousness and coma. These symptoms result from the depressant effect of acidosis on cerebral function. Respiratory symptoms such as shortness of breath and coughing may be observed due to the stimulation of chemoreceptors that increase respiratory drive in an attempt to blow off carbon dioxide and correct the pH. The cardiovascular system may exhibit arrhythmias and an increased heart rate as the body tries to compensate for the acidotic state. Muscular system involvement can lead to seizures and general weakness due to altered electrolyte gradients across cell membranes. Acidosis can also affect the digestive system, leading to nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea as the gastrointestinal tract becomes irritated. On the other hand, alkalosis, characterized by a decrease in hydrogen ion concentration or an increase in bicarbonate, leads to a higher blood pH. Neurologically, patients may experience confusion, lightheadedness, stupor, and can also progress to coma if severe. The peripheral nervous system may be affected causing symptoms like hand tremor and numbness, or tingling in the face, hands, or feet. Muscular symptoms in alkalosis include twitching and prolonged spasms known as tetany, which result from decreased ionized calcium concentration in the blood. In the digestive system, alkalosis can cause nausea and vomiting due to the contraction of smooth muscle in the gut. It's important to remember that these manifestations can vary widely among individuals, and may be influenced by the underlying cause of the acid-base disturbance, the rate at which the disturbance has developed, and the presence of other medical conditions. The last topic in this nephrology basic section is understanding normal physiology of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. This is a, a hormone system that regulates blood pressure and fluid balance. The renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system cascade begins when the kidneys' juxtaglomerular cells located near the glomerulus, detect low fluid flow or low sodium concentration. In response, they secrete an enzyme called renin into the bloodstream. Renin then catalyzes the conversion of angiotensinogen, a protein released by the liver, into angiotensin 1. As angiotensin I circulates through the pulmonary blood vessels, the angiotensin-converting enzyme, ACE, converts it to angiotensin II, a potent vasoconstrictor. Angiotensin II has multiple effects. It stimulates the adrenal cortex to release aldosterone, which prompts the kidneys to reabsorb sodium and excrete potassium. And it also triggers the release of antidiuretic hormone, ADH, which increases water reabsorption in the kidneys. Aldosterone acts on the distal convoluted tubule and collecting ducts in the kidney, increasing the uptake of sodium on the apical cell membrane. This sodium reabsorption drives water retention, thereby increasing blood volume and blood pressure. ADH works by causing aquaporins to move to the collecting duct plasma membrane, further increasing water reabsorption. While the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system plays a pivotal role in maintaining hemodynamic stability, its activation can be detrimental in certain disorders. In congestive heart failure, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system can exacerbate fluid overload and worsen cardiac function. Therefore, many drugs used in the treatment of hypertension and heart failure aim to inhibit various components of this cascade. For instance, AC inhibitors block the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin II, and aldosterone antagonists inhibit the effects of aldosterone on the kidney.